Uh, good to see you this morning, and uh, we have a very unique time today, and we're excited about it. So thank you for being here. We're just going to be starting right away, and if you are uh, accustomed to singing during your church service, so are we. Uh, we're just doing a very unique service today. We're going to have some prayer at the beginning, and then we'll close in prayer, but our entire service is dedicated to what we're calling Inside Out. And Inside Out is an opportunity for us to equip the saints when it comes to relevant cultural controversies or discussions that are out there that can be confusing. And so we've covered a variety of these. Uh, Back in June, late June, our nation uh, made a ruling. Our Supreme Court made a ruling concerning marriage equality. And at that time, uh, many pastors, many churches, most pastors, most churches made a statement about this. And we told you that we were going to be praying about it, thinking through it, studying it, and that this would be the day that we would share with you, uh, in in the words of Francis Schaeffer, how then shall we live? And so today is here to equip you on what does Scripture say how do we handle this concept and, and reality of marriage equality? And what all is at stake in the conversation? So, you'll notice that none of our kids are here with us. We do want to let you know that uh, we'll be talking about some specific things related to this. Um, and want to make sure that you're, you're comfortable with uh, being in here today. Our number one desire today is that, number one... We have you walk away with some takeaways. The primary one is this, loving God, and then in light of loving God, how do we love people? And this is just a particular circumstance or, or challenge or issue that fits into this. So I'm going to pray, and then my friend Brad Walter, one of our elders at Concord Bible, will be uh, sharing the platform with me. And so let me discuss with you real quickly before I pray what our format is today. So Brad's going to do the introduction, and he's going to, you know, he, he, in his side job, other than being an elder, he's a lawyer. And so he's going to bring a little bit of that proficiency of, uh, of legalese and, and legal jargon to us to help us understand what actually was decided in late June and how does that affect us and how does that affect the nation. Um, So he'll be doing the introduction, and then he'll be presenting the first point, which is loving God, loving people. Now, what you're going to be able to do after our three major points is you get to ask questions. Brad and I are hoping to regulate our time to 10 minutes. For Brad, that'll be easy. For me, well, you know, let's just keep moving. Uh, But we want to give you about 10 minutes to ask questions. Now, we know that this is sensitive material, so... Uh, you may want to just field a question, so you'll be able to raise your hand, and we'll walk up with a microphone. And we encourage you, please use the microphone. We are recording this, and we believe the content of this is so good and so important that people are going to refer back to this on the video. So they're going to need to hear your question. If you're uncomfortable voicing the question, like I would be, then you can actually text. This is, this is your one freedom day for cell phone usage during the service. Now, if you're playing Angry Birds or Candy Crush, we have people sitting out there watching and looking, and uh, we'll get the camera on you, and it'll go up. No, we won't really do that, but uh, you can text in your question 
uh, to those that are back in the booth. That number is going to be on the screen throughout the day. And send in your question, and we will answer it. Now, you may send in a question that doesn't make it. We may get 10 questions. I think we can only answer about two questions per segment. So make sure if you have a question, you, you get it up there quick. Uh, because, uh, again, we're going to try to stick right to our timeline. So Brad's got loving God, loving people. And then I will have critical thinking versus coercive thinking. And uh, moving on from there, then I will follow up with biblical teaching and Matthew Vine. And you'll see what that's all about. And again, each time you'll have an opportunity to ask questions. The last point, that third point, is really work study. It's really taking the reality of what's happening out there in the ether of, of this culture and this question and bringing it home. And if we've done our job with the first two questions, then we hope that we have equipped you well to address this case study at the end. Does that make sense? All right. Well, let me go ahead and pray, and then uh, the um, brighter half of this presentation is going to come up here and start sharing with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your truth. We ask, Lord God, that as we uh, embark on this journey this morning, that it is understood that we simply do this to help our people understand what your, um, what your good and perfect will is, and how does that fit with loving people around us, and how does that fit with the culture, and, and how are we to respond, and how are we to think through these challenging and difficult and very personal issues. So, Father, I pray that we handle this with grace and compassion and that as we leave today, that, that we may leave with information that helps us, that equips us. But, Father, I pray that we leave with a burden more than we leave with information. I pray that we, we leave with a, a, a heart of compassion that we leave with a, a heart like your son demonstrated while here in his ministry. Thank you, Father, to your glory. Amen. Brad. Can I give you back your tablet? Yes. Because I may scratch it with my old-fashioned binder. <laughs> well, good morning. Uh, it's, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, so let's jump in. On June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court, in the case of Obergefell versus Hudson, Hodges actually, ruled in a 5-4 to four decision that the United States Constitution guarantees a right to same-sex marriage. No longer may this liberty be denied, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote for the majority in the historic opinion. No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming the marital union, two people become something greater than once they were, said Justice Kennedy. Kennedy went on to say that marriage is a keystone of our social order and stated that plaintiffs were seeking equal dignity in the eyes of the law. This decision, which was the culmination of, a decades, of decades of litigation and activism, came against a backdrop of fast-moving change in our culture, where public opinion polls now indicate that the American public is largely split on the issue. 
as Jeremy said, our goal today is, is, is pretty specific. That is to understand the court's decision. It's to understand what God says about marriage. It's to understand why this issue is important to the church and to prepare you to, to be light in the world, in the culture, to be able to discuss this issue with individuals. There are a lot of other issues that you may have been thinking about, such as will standing up for God's word constitute hate speech going forward? Will the church be forced to compromise and perform same-sex marriages? Will we lose our tax exemption? Um, is civil disobedience required? Those are all good issues, but it's not our plan to cover those or to focus on those today, although they will likely come up, because it is our view that the greatest threat flowing from this decision is to the individual. By normalizing same-sex marriage and by implication same-sex relationships, more and more individuals will be led astray. No longer will the cultural norms work as a deterrent, but our children and teenagers and young adults will be faced with and taught that biblical morality is wrong, biblical sin is not sin, how we feel defines truth as opposed to what God's word says on the topic, and that there is no absolute truth, that there is no right or wrong. Um, so that's where we are. Um, I already shared the holding of the Supreme Court, namely that the United States Constitution guarantees a right to same-sex marriage. Before we get into the decision, I just want to go over a little bit of history on Justice Kennedy's decision. As of June 2015, 37 states allowed uh, same-sex marriages, but only 11 of those were, uh, were passed based on popular vote. The rest were done upon legislative action. The latest decision came exactly two years after the court's decision in the United States versus Windsor, which struck down a federal law denying benefits to lawfully married same-sex couples. And exactly 12 years after the court's decision in Lawrence versus Texas, which struck down laws making gay sex a crime. Justice Kennedy authored both of those opinions. In each of Justice Kennedy's decisions, he embraced a vision of a living constitution, one that evolves with societal changes. He said, the nature of injustice is that we may not always see it in our own times. The generations that wrote and ratified the Bill of Rights and the, and the 14th Amendment did not presume to know the extent of freedom in all of its dimensions. And so they entrusted to future generations a charter protecting the rights of all persons to enjoy liberty as we learn its meaning. Kennedy went on to say that marriage is a fundamental right under the 14th Amendment and that the motivation of those desiring to withhold this fundamental right to same-sex couples appears to be to disparage, to injure, to degrade, demean, humiliate our fellow human beings, our fellow citizens who are homosexuals. Justice Scalia vehemently disagreed with Justice Kennedy's finding of a fundamental right and the alleged motivation of those attempting to preserve traditional marriage. Justice Scalia said in a mocking tone, the majority have discovered in the 14th Amendment a fundamental right overlooked by every person alive at the time of the ratification and almost everyone else in time since. Those justices know that limiting marriage to one man and one woman is contrary to reason. They know that an institution as old as government itself and accepted by every nation in history until 15 years ago, cannot possibly be supported by anything other than ignorance or bigotry. Remember, this was a five to four decision. 
Chief Justice Roberts stated in his dissent that the majority opinion was an act of the will, not legal judgment. He goes on to say, if you are among the many Americans of whatever sexual orientation who favor expanding same-sex marriage, by all means celebrate today's decision. Celebrate the achievement of a desired goal. Celebrate the opportunity for a new expression of a commitment to a partner. Celebrate the availability of new benefits. But do not celebrate the Constitution. It had nothing to do with it. The court invalidates the marriage laws of more than... It, Roberts goes on. The court invalidates the marriage laws of more than half the states and orders the transformation of a social institution that has formed the basis of human society for millennia. For the Kalahari Bushmen and the Han Chinese, the Carthaginians and the Aztecs. Just who do we think we are? Kennedy noted that raising children is of special importance to the fundamental right of marriage. He wrote, without the recognition, stability, and predictability marriage offers, their children suffer the stigma of knowing their families are somehow lesser. They also suffer the significant material costs of being raised by unmarried parents, relegated through no fault of their own to a more difficult and uncertain family life. The marriage laws at issue here thus harm and humiliate the children of same-sex couples. The issue gets complicated, doesn't it? Or apparently does. On the issue of the decision, on whether the decision would harm religious liberty, Kennedy stated, finally, it must be emphasized that religions and those who adhere to religious doctrines may continue to advocate with utmost sincere conviction that by divine precepts, same-sex marriages cannot be condoned. The First Amendment ensures that religious organizations and persons are given proper protection as they seek to teach the principles that are so fulfilling and so central to their lives and faith. Justice Roberts responded to that, saying, People of faith can take no comfort in the treatment they receive from the majority today. Three quick points before we move on. The first is that the role of the Supreme Court is to provide a final interpretation of the Constitution when there are disputes. Um, I have not heard anyone on either side of the argument postulate that the case was not appropriately before the Supreme Court. That's where it needed to go, according to our system. The second is, is more important, is the ever-present argument about whether the drafters of the Constitution or whether the, the Constitution should be interpreted based upon the intentions of the original drafters of the Constitution or whether it is acceptable to interpret the Constitution based on what the current judge sees in the text. This issue is not limited to constitutional interpretations, but arises in exactly the same form in connection with the interpretation of the scriptures. Judicial activism and theological liberalism both stem from the perspective that the original author's actual language and or discovered intentions may be helpful but are not determinative to the meaning of the text. This is a point raised repeatedly in the dissents by Justices Roberts, Scalia, Alito, and Thomas, namely that a new fundamental right is being created out of thin air by the majority, based, as Roberts said, on an act of the will as opposed to an act of legal judgment. The third point to remember is that the Supreme Court justices are appointed for life. 
But our Father in heaven has an eternal term and acts when the time is right to accomplish his will. We must never forget who we serve and whose will is going to win in the long run. So that's at a very high level, providing some of the, the, the points of argument. So I'll open it up if anybody has any questions at this point about uh, the Constitution. You can raise them later if it comes up. But I think it's a necessary framework for us to understand where the court came out. Um, there's more details, of course. It was a long opinion. I've got a binder of it. But I also think that it's important when we, when we dialogue on the issue that those with whom we are speaking know that we understand the basis for the decision. And it isn't just an emotional reaction, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. But we understand it, we've looked at it, and we have our reasons for opposing it. Okay. Moving into the, this idea of loving God, loving people, what God's expectation is. You know, when we confront the issue of same-sex marriage, we must not forget that we are dealing with people, not just facts and theories. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that two very different experiences often characterize what men and women with same-sex desire is usually find in church today. Either the church rejects them out of hand for what they feel in order to maintain God's righteous standards, or they are embraced and encouraged to celebrate their same-sex desires as a natural expression of who God made them to be. The questions before us today are, are these the only two options? Is there a third option? And is it possible to embrace both unchanging truth and unlimited grace? Let me repeat that before we move on too quickly. Is it possible to embrace both unchanging truth and unlimited grace? Our position as a church is that the answer to the third question is yes. But it is only, it is only possible when we understand God's word as it relates to both ideals. And they cannot be taken out of context. When asked by an expert in the law, what must one do to inherit eternal life? Jesus confirmed in Luke 10, 27. I'll get better with this. It just seemed like an odd thing to... Uh, Jesus confirmed in Luke 10, 27 that the answer was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. As concerns loving God, we could come up with a long list of attributes of what that means. But Jesus really cuts to the quick in John 14, 15, when he says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. While obedience is not always a popular topic, it is clear that God's expectation, even though he knows that we will not do it perfectly, is that those who call Jesus Lord will obey Jesus' commands. So what is God's standard concerning sexuality and marriage? While our focus today is on same-sex marriage, the treatment of homosexual relationships in Scripture is relevant to our conversation. Let me identify the four primary biblical passages that deal with homosexuality. I do not have time to go through the scriptures in detail, so I'm providing them as references to you. And these references are uh, the story of Sodom in Genesis 19, the, Levit the Leviticus texts 
in verses in chapters 18 and 20. Uh, Romans 1, 24 to 27, really goes on to 32. And 1 Corinthians, there is 32. Amazing. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9. In summary, the Old Testament references, I, the Old Testament references identify homosexuality as a form of gross immorality and perversion. Taken together, Paul's teachings in the New Testament classify homosexual behavior as a, as a vice for the, the, the Gentiles in Rome, as a bar to the kingdom in Corinthians, as an, as, and as an offense to the moral law in general described in 1 Timothy. These texts are obviously negative in tone, meaning that they tell us what not to do. Once again, we could spend a lot of time on these verses. I just wanted to go over and give them to you as a reference so you have them. Um, with regard to marriage, it is critical to look briefly at the positive teaching in Scripture about human sexuality in marriage. These scriptures tell us what should be done. Genesis 1 and 2 are, provide complementary accounts of creation. The first chapter is general and affirms the equality of the sexes since both were made in the image of God. Genesis 2 is more specific, affirming the complementary differences between the sexes which is the basis for heterosexual marriage. In the second chapter of Genesis, three fundamental truths emerge. That's just one piece of the Genesis text. The first of these fundamental truths is that humans need companionship. We were created for companionship. In verse 18, after creating Adam, God says, it is not good that man should be alone. God created, a, created us as social beings with the capacity to love and be loved. That's part of being made in the image of God. So God continues and says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. And we will see that this helper, who is different but suitable, is also to become his sexual partner. Second Genesis 2 reveals the divine provision to meet this human need. Having affirmed Adam's need for a partner, the search begins. God parades all the animals before Adam. He names them. Yet in verse 20, says that for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Since there was no one suitable for Adam, God had to perform a special act of creation. Adam was placed in a deep sleep, and out of his rib, God fashioned a woman. As Matthew Henry wrote, which probably most of us in this room have heard, not made out of his head to top him, not made out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. Adam was overwhelmed. He broke into the first love song ever written. Not the best in my mind, but probably the first, when he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. To put it bluntly, Adam was turned on. This leads to the third thing Genesis 2 reveals, and that is the institution of marriage. After Adam's love song in verse 23, the phrase in verse 24 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice the required participants of the marriage are one man and one woman. Notice that their union is to be publicly acknowledged as they leave their father and mother. 
It is to be permanently sealed as they cleave to one another in a loving commitment. And it is to be physically consummated in a one flesh union. Jesus endorsed this definition of marriage in the New Testament. When he was questioned about marriage in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, he quoted Genesis 127, which said that God created the male and female. And then he quoted Genesis 2.24, which affirmed the leaving and cleaving and resulting one flesh union we just talked about. Finally, he added his own comment. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So in short, Jesus affirmed that heterosexual gender is a divine creation. Heterosexual marriage is a divine institution and heterosexual fidelity is the divine intention. Scripture endorses no other kind of sex or marriage. By the way, we shouldn't just single out homosexuality in this regard. Any sexual activity that deviates from this is wrong. Whether it's adultery, cohabitation, casual encounters, pornography, or teenage experimentation. It's inconsistent with God's word. The importance of understanding scripture in total is that scripture teaches that homosexuality is wrong, is a sin, and that scripture teaches that heterosexual marriage is correct. The negative and the positive are consistent within the scripture, and they both lead to the, the, the proper understanding of what marriage is. Now, of course, the same-sex marriage advocates disagree with this teaching for a number of reasons. Jeremy will be discussing many of those in detail a little bit later. But my goal was to share, even though we all know most of this, is to share the, the, the key scriptures that we embrace in this church. The pressure today on the church to change its historic stance on homosexuality and same-sex marriage is unrelenting. But I hope we can see that we can only position, we can only change our position by changing our fundamental stance on biblical authority and changing our view of human beings being made in the image of God. In every generation, the church has faced the challenges to cave into society. The current challenge is the newest form of an old set of challenges, namely to diminish the authority of God's word and to understand people on their own terms and rather, rather than on God's terms. Loving God, loving God means that we stand firm on what God's word says. Romans 1, 16 to 17 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. For the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as, as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. Now what about loving others? Or as Jesus said in, in Luke ten twenty seven, loving your neighbor. What I don't mean is a love that denies the truth of the gospel or the standards of scripture. There is a misunderstanding today about love and more specifically about tolerance. It used to be that tolerance meant to agree to disagree. That you could disagree with someone about what is right and wrong, but you still respected them and loved them as being made in the image of God. But today tolerance has come to mean there is no right and wrong. You don't agree to disagree. You just agree that everybody can do what they want and believe what they want. And somehow, we're all right. That's not tolerance, my friends. That's foolishness. 
So when I speak of loving others, what do I mean? Jeremy did a wonderful job last week in discussing love. The same truth he shared last week applies to anyone that we may come across with a different view on same-sex marriage. In the context of our topic today, loving others means, among other things, It means that love must be sincere. Paul says this very thing in, in Romans 12, 9. That means we are placing others above ourselves by choice, even when we disagree with them. In verse 10, the love one another is agape love, which means that it's a choice that we make to care for somebody, to respect them. They are not those that we disagree with, are not someone simply to win an argument against or to criticize or to make the butt of jokes or to simply disregard. We are to care about them. It's part of what it means to love. Love must hold to the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6-7 says, Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres perseveres. That means that we share God's truth and his love by whatever means we have before us. That may mean caring for someone or it may mean debating someone. But in either situation, we hold to God's truth and God's motives. As mentioned earlier, we are not ashamed. We are not to be ashamed of the gospel. And must remember, as Paul says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Next, love must remember that we're all sinners and that, for the, and that but for the grace of God, we will all be looking at spending eternity in hell. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10 earlier for the purpose of showing that homosexuality was in the list of sins that, that Paul identified. In verse 11, Paul goes on, though, to say, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Jesus came into our lives and loved us, forgave us, saved us, and lives within us. He offers us a future and a hope based upon the fact that we are made, we are made in his image. And on that basis, we are valuable. We far too often overlook a few important things. We overlook the fact that most homosexual people are not solely responsible for their condition, although they are responsible for their conduct. I don't want to be misinterpreted here. Saying they're not solely responsible for their condition, and they are responsible for their conduct. We can show compassion in that area. We overlook the fact that they are not the enemy, they are victims of the enemy. We overlook the fact that, as John Stott describes, at the heart of the homosexual condition is a deep loneliness, the natural human hunger for mutual love, a search for identity, and a longing for completeness. We overlook the fact that while struggling with same-sex attraction, that, that those struggling with same-sex attractions must repent of their homosexual behavior, there are many within the church that must repent of their heterosexual self-righteousness and hatred. It is time for the church to face straight on what we have and have not done in this area over the years and accept responsibility for being far too quiet, far too fearful, and far too unkind. 
Lastly, love must care. Luke 15, 11 through 32. Describes the father of the prodigal son. You know, what a story. I love that story. I know I'm not alone. And you know that the father was, was, was likely criticized and mocked within the village for how he treated his son. But when the younger son reached the bottom, he knew where to go because he knew that his father had loved him. It is time, as I say on the screen, it is time for the loving actions of Christians to be so obvious that the one thing the homosexual community cannot deny is that we love them and we care for them. For some, that will not be enough. They also want us to agree with them. We can't do that. But may they'd never be able to say we didn't extend a hand to help. There are thousands of people dying of AIDS right here in the Bay Area, and they are alone. I'll tell you something that I believe to the bottom of my heart. Jesus would be there. For some reason, these are the kinds of people that were drawn to Jesus. The question is, why aren't they drawn to us? Before I open up for questions, I just want to go over quickly. I think I'm over my 10 minutes. I apologize. <laughs> it's hard up here, trust me. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I wanted to, to, to list four reasons why this is such a critical issue for the church. Some of this may repeat what we said earlier, but I wanted to provide you with some bullet points for you to consider when you're thinking, ah, so what? The definition of marriage has changed. While same-sex marriage proponents argue to the contrary, as we discussed, the institution of marriage was created by God and followed all over the world through history, and it's between a man and a woman. For the Supreme Court to change the definition of such a clearly defined institution leads to the question of what limits actually exist on the court. You know, the, the Supreme Court was designed to have judges with a life term so that they would be immune from political pressure and popular opinion. The recent Supreme Court decision places in question whether the court's immunity is still intact. The church is likewise supposed to be immune from popular opinion and other forms of pressure. In the face of the Supreme Court abdicating its role, it is imperative that the church step up and stand firm. Romans 1.32 that we looked at briefly earlier, in dealing with those who exchanged God's truth for a lie, says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. If those in sin are criticized for approving others who practice sin, it is a chilling thought to think of God's reaction to churches that likewise refuse to stand firm on God's word and instead are quiet and approve of such activities. One only needs to read the letters in Revelation to the seven churches to get an idea of what God's judgment can be like. Second, the Supreme Court is redefining sin. The Supreme Court has found homosexual relationships, including marriage, to be acceptable and mainstream. The court has explicitly replaced biblical authority with man-made law. This normalization, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning, 
of same-sex relationships means that our children and young adults will be taught in the classroom with even more force that same-sex relationships are fine. The number of individuals who will be led astray by this teaching that marginalizes God's word and any other competing voice will be too many to count. Let me bring it home. The couple dozen kids that, that accepted Christ in lifetime this summer will be facing this teaching. Will be facing in the, in the classroom that that is fine, that the Bible is wrong, that this is normal, that this is the way to be happy. John Piper stated, My sense is that we do not realize what a calamity is happening around us. The new thing, new for America, new for history, is not homosexuality. That brokenness has been here since we were all broken in the fall of man. What's new is not even the celebration and approval of homosexual sin. Homosexual behavior has been exploited and reveled in and celebrated in art for millennia. What's new is normalization and institutionalism. That's what the calamity is. Third, Romans 125 states that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Relativism is the idea that there are no absolutes, that no one has the right to impose any absolutes on me because I have the right to define my own truth. This enables man to be their own God. Striking down the clear truth of Scripture, as the Supreme Court did, weakens the, the authority of Scripture in this country as a moral compass upon which life should be lived. It becomes all about what we feel and what we want with no overriding external authority. C.K. Chesterton. Oops, sorry about that. Um, stated decades, decades ago in England this rather prophetic statement. He said, For under the smooth legal surface of our society, there are already moving very lawless things. We are always near the breaking point when we care only for what is legal and nothing for what is lawful. Unless we have a moral principle about such delicate matters as marriage and murder, the whole world will become a welter of exceptions with no rules. It will be so many hard cases that everything will go soft. Lastly, the Supreme Court's decision places the temporal needs and wants of a small group of individuals above the eternal objective, objectives of God. The same-sex marriage advocates, advocates state that they simply want to have a loving relationship, a family, security, and be protected from discrimination. What they do not realize is that life is more than being comfortable in this world. If the church is willing to sacrifice God's truth and eternal perspective and say, well, gosh, you know, the motives of the same-sex marriage advocates don't seem too bad, and it's really no skin off of my back, and that I can still live my life according to how I want to live it, then we are compromising the truth and helping to celebrate that which is not the will of the Father. We are talking about lost souls, and the way to touch these individuals is not by compromising but by living out the truth and grace with God's help. That means staying true to God's eternal plan. A lot of stuff, a lot of serious stuff. Um, 
but we need to recognize what God's word has to say. And so before I uh, open it up for questions, I want to see, Jeremy, if you had anything you wanted to Sure. Add. Well, as I was sitting over here battling flies, Brad, that'll be our next here, I can... side out is, yes, thank you, is Satan actually the procurator of flies, the fly kingdom? Um, wow, just a ton of information. Great, great information. And so you all need to be coming up with your questions right now that either you'll raise your hand because I'll get up in a minute with the microphone, or you can actually start texting those in right now. So, Brad, loving God, loving people, you did a great job of helping us understand that loving God is being in obedience to his standard and his will. And, and what I understand that our, our purpose and our belief and, and what we espouse is that by holding to what God holds, that that is good for us. It's not just that it's, it's some, some lawful statement to control people, but that it, in fact, is good for us as well. Um, and so, in light of that, the scriptures seem pretty clear that, that, you know, homosexual behavior, the acts of that, are not approved by God. As a matter of fact, to the contrary. Um, and then you did a great job of laying out the fact that the Bible, through Christ's words, through God's words, has made a statement on marriage. That marriage is between a man and a woman. You did a great job building that case. I feel like a judge right now, um, talking to a solicitor. Um, and then you, you definitely helped us understand the importance of knowing that information. Then how do we love the person that is saddled with this? Um, so eloquently and strategically and... Uh, uh, beautifully put together but i'm sitting here saying you know i know of somebody that has a cousin that is gay and they have invited this individual to their wedding and they're they're now saddled with the decision okay i believe that god's word is clear brad laid out a great you know demonstration of this now I have this problem that this is family. These are people I care about. These are people that I love. If I go, then I'm am I compromising God's standard because I love this person and I want to support them? Or do I not go because God's standard is important and therefore it appears like I really don't love them? Can you help me answer this for this person? So that's where we want you all to go. Okay? So think about those kind of questions. I'm, I'm not trying to duck it. I'll answer the question. Yeah. yeah. And not that that wasn't a prefab question that we spent about an hour and a half talking about last night. But, but this would be my answer. And, and uh, you know, Nancy and I were recently in a situation where, where someone very close to us um, was living with their, their boyfriend. And um, then they elected to get married, and they sent us an invitation. And so what, was, what were we going to do? Would we, would we come alongside and, and, and go to the wedding, celebrate that, that union, or stand back you know, on, on, on God's truth, that this is wrong? And, um, so it's not quite the same thing, but, but what, 
what, where our mind went, and I think where my mind would go and what I would share with your cousin or the cousin. It's not my cousin. Um, Let's get that straight. Yeah. I'm just kidding. You know, is, is that, and, and they're always, it's always fact dependent, right? It depends upon the relationship. It depends on different things. But what was important to Nance and I was that, that we wanted to continue the relationship with this person who was close with us. We felt that we could demonstrate God's love by being involved in their life while they were living with, with their boyfriend. And then when they decided to get married, that we could best demonstrate God's love by attending. Um, I think that sometimes we are overly concerned with God's reputation and we sacrifice loving people because of some concern about God's reputation. But there are situations where I certainly understand that if someone felt led by the Lord not to attend the marriage, um, the one thing that I, I would say and what we did in our situation was we made sure that the person close to us understood where we stood when it first came up, when the cohabitation first began. We made sure they understood our position um, and told them that we loved them despite that, but they knew what the truth was. So I would say if someone is, is thinking about not going to the marriage of the, of the, of the gay person, that they should have a discussion with that person and make sure they understand you know, what their position is and why that, that's what their position is. And I think they should really check motives. I'm, I'm not saying that it's not the right thing to do in certain situations, but I think jumping to that conclusion is, is wrong. We need to check motives, check what a loving relationship would be like, a loving, how can we best serve them and demonstrate God's love. But each of us, ha each of us have to be sensitive to, the God, to God's leading based upon where we're at. But in most things I do, I check my motives because I don't trust them. They're from the pit of hell lots of time. And so sometimes we say that God is leading me to do something and that's just a... I shouldn't say it, but that just is a, is a convenient excuse. So let's make sure that's true because it, it, it could very well be. But I think that we have to think through the entire situation. Great. I think we have a question. Let's see that on the screen. Our tech team is doing a fantastic job here. Two-slide question. Wow, somebody burnt their thumbs up. Okay, I believe that God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. However, isn't it okay if our government has a different definition? I don't expect that our country's laws need to mimic God's laws because gay marriage doesn't cause direct harm to anyone the way murder or stealing do. Isn't it okay for it to be legal? Plenty of things that are immoral are still legal. Great question. Brad, so there's a lot of legalese in that, so I'm going to let you handle it. Can you go back to the first slide? Um, our government didn't define marriage in the first instance. You know, God did. It, it, it was an institution that has been around, been around for the millennia is just as Roberts said. Um, yes, there's separation between church and state, but when, this, when, when the government steps in and undermines the credibility of God's word, that's a concern. Um, the issue of, of, of whether gay marriage doesn't cause direct harm to anyone, you know, I would, I would tend to disagree with. 
in the sense that when the government says that gay marriage is right, and in the decision, if you read it, it clearly makes the case that it is mainstream, it is normal, it is acceptable, then that definition, that statement, with all the force and power of the, of the United States Supreme Court, will affect people. It will affect people who are no longer hesitant to try that lifestyle. It will affect them in that they will be susceptible to not seeing the truth of what, what, what God says about them, that they are wonderfully and fearfully made, they are cared for, they are loved, and the way to a meaningful life and an eternal life is through Jesus Christ. It's a statement of the court that, that undermines that to a great degree. Um, the other thing we have to remember is no one is saying that, 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 that domestic unions or that homosexuality is unlawful. The issue is that there's, there's, there's an attempt to redefine the definition of marriage and the claim that because they, don't, or they, they weren't able to be married that there is some sort of discrimination involved. And Jeremy's going to be talking about that later. But for discrimination to be involved, you have to be part of the protected class. And so the definition of marriage is, is that it's between a man and a woman. That's why they had to redefine marriage, because two men are not within the protected class. If you're not within the protected class, the definition of marriage is not discriminatory not to allow them to get married. Once again, that's why the definition of marriage is so critical to this. So that's, that's a long-winded issue, but there is harm to society. There is harm to individuals by this decision. Brad, uh, kind of similar to that, piggybacking. Um, I apologize if you're not sure about this, but can you um, differentiate between domestic partnerships, which gave homosexual rights, you know, gave them rights long ago, as opposed to now, okay, this is marriage, you know, yeah. as far as like, it, you know, was there some secret agenda to, okay, we want it to be defined as marriage, as opposed to, hey, you have rights and under domestic partnerships. I'm, I'm not an expert on the differences, but I, I do know that one of the, the key differences with regards to domestic partnerships is you know, certain rights in, for example, emergency situations. That if you're not married, your domestic partner is in the hospital, you may or may not be able to have access to that individual. You um, should have access to, to, to benefits, but I think that is up in the air. So, Damien, I, I, I don't stand up here without feeling compassion for it. I mean, it. It is a difficult situation because there are certain things that are being sought that we all seek, right? And that there are differences between domestic unions, partnerships, you know, and marriage. But the, the, the remedy that's being sought by the same-sex marriage advocates, once again, is to move into the marriage situation, which causes the redefinition which undermines God's truth and God's law and, and harms, as I've talked about before. But, but we, we shouldn't blithely go on and say, oh, gosh, just go back to the, you know, it's, it's a difficult situation because those are people that I know. I have a number of friends that, that, that struggle in this area. I care for them. I love them. I respect them. And so it's hard sometimes to stand up and say, no, I don't agree that you should have those rights. 
I'm going to go ahead and have Lyndon share one question. Then I apologize. We're already going to drop off point number three today. Uh, we're down to about 18 minutes total. So, Lyndon. Sorry, Jer. No, that's no problem. We're going to have a three-part series now. <laughs> go my ahead. Qu my question is uh, actually in terms of the first part of that slide. When you talk about government, is it okay for government? There are many governments in this world who define marriage differently than even what America does, and some of whom do do harm to others. I'm thinking specifically in India, what's called child weddings, where a young child, is a woman, is forced to marry at a very young age. Uh, I'm, you know, that to me is, is very much the equivalent in terms of how do you how do you respond from God's law to a situation like that? Yeah, it's interesting that you raise that, Lyndon. One of the arguments that Justice Kennedy proposed in the decision was that that marriage has changed over the years, and he used not quite that, but he used the decreased use of prearranged marriages as an example in his decision. He said, well, marriage isn't static. There have been changes over the years, and um, prearranged marriages have, have, have decreased, right? That uh, we've allowed um, uh, interracial marriages to occur. We've allowed prisoners to get married. And so that's, it's, just, it's just a fluid spectrum that as we become more wise and we become more self-aware, that we can allow marriage to be defined. And so this isn't new. This isn't the first time that marriage has been defined. But that was his argument. Um, I, I think it's fairly weak in the sense, I always am hesitant to call it Supreme Court Justice's argument weak, just because, <laughs> you know. Um, but it seems that the, 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 the thrust of it, and even though there are some exceptions of marriage being defined differently in other countries, by and large, across this earth, for the millennia, marriages have been defined in the central tenet is between a man and a woman, you know. And there are, there are other aspects of it, the age, whether you can it be prearranged, those kind of things, but the, the, the main thrust of it is, you know, what we've always held to. Let me transition this. Thank you for those two questions. Thank you, Brad. Great job, Brad. <laughs> Give a hard clap like that, you have to transition, right? It's a, it's a speaking technique. Um, let's use this question to transition. Actually, I'm going to use the previous question to transition into my, my portion here. But let's ask, let's, let me answer this question. Brad, if you want to fill in, feel free. Do you advocate Christians take on political activism to address this? Why or why not? I would say I'm going to use a demonstration, and I want you, this is a takeaway today. This is a takeaway for you. When you get into fuzzy areas that you're just not sure and it's difficult I encourage you, go to the demonstration of Jesus Christ. If that is your um, conviction, is that you please the Creator, not the created, if that's the order of how you think, then practice that methodology, okay? When, when it gets a little fuzzy, when it gets a little cloudy, when it gets a little difficult, go to the life of Christ. And Christ, just one, one instance of this, okay? And, and, and I'll quote one other thing. Christ with the Samaritan woman. He says something a little bit about her husbands, doesn't he? And this seems to be a big issue for her. And there's an implication, 
Uh, It's probably not that explicit, but there's an implication that she just is probably not viewed very well. Because when it comes to, you know, romantic relationships, she's just stumbling all over the place. Right? And so Jesus addresses it. He enters to conversation with it as a technique to demonstrate his omniscience. But is that where he camps out? Does he have a big discussion about the morality of her life? His answer to her was this simple. He used a mechanism that was not connected to the subject of morality. He used a non sequitur point saying, can you give me some water? But by asking that, he, he crossed a bunch of boundaries, right? So us as the church, that going somewhere where uh, uh, an evangelical Christian would maybe, that would be controversial for that evangelical Christian to be seen or to converse or to talk, that would be very akin to exactly what Christ was doing here. He engaged with her. He started having discussion with her. And then it went right to the morality issue. My question is, did he stay there? No, he used the mechanism that he used to introduce conversation. And then he turns it and he says what? He says, I will give you water so that you will never what? You'll never thirst again. See, he took it to the deepest point. And when it comes to advocacy of these issues, we get caught into the periphery. Do you hear me on this? And I think we get so caught into the red herring of these discussions and these problems and these cultural challenges that this is an effort by the enemy to get us so distracted that we're not sharing the deeper truth. We're not sharing what it is. Because, by the way, you're never going to change someone's conviction. You may change someone's mind, but you're not going to argue someone out of their conviction, right? Are we agreed on that? That's up to the Lord. So to advocate and get political about this whole subject, as your pastor, I encourage you to stay out of that. Now, did I just tell you not to have a conviction about the situation? I did not. I just don't believe that we should be out marching about this. I don't believe that we necessarily should consume our time and eat up our time with writing our congressmen and and things like that about this. Jesus said, render unto Caesar that which was what? It's Caesar's. But I think so much of the time we take that statement and we just surrender our own convictions. And I'll go back to that previous statement um, to demonstrate this and then to introduce my point. I, I, I think Brad brought up a point where it says, why is this an issue if it doesn't cause harm? If nobody's getting hurt? This is exactly my section is that this is a line that has been given to us over and over and over, not just about pertaining to marriage equality, but about many things, right? That what does it matter if nobody's getting hurt? We should have the freedom to do what we want. Let me ask you, does anybody get hurt in divorce? Because it's legal. Does anybody get hurt? Who primarily gets hurt in divorce? The children. And one of the... Um, clinical ways. I'm not just pulling things out of the ether here. One of the clinical ways that we know that is because 
you end up denying the child one of the two parents and one of the roles of the parents. So if we hear this rhetoric that nobody gets hurt in same-sex marriage, I can give you a long list of people that grew up in same-sex marriages and said, didn't affect me at all. I can give you a long list of people that say, hey, what's the big deal? There's divorced kids all over the place and they're doing fine. Do you think that's the reality? Because studies out of Chicago University and Columbia University prove otherwise. That's the facts. And the facts are is that God created man and woman and that those roles, sometimes because of sin, those situations come crumbling down and an individual doesn't have the advantage and blessing and opportunity to have both of those roles investing in their life. So the reality is somebody comes along and twists that logic. They coerce the logic saying, well, if you're going to pick on children of those who are same-sex marriage, then what kind of a statement are you making to those that didn't have one of the two parent roles? The reality is, is that most of the time those children would be begging for both parents, both roles. That they fulfill a purpose. And so when we get to this point of saying, if it's not harming anybody, what's the problem? Part of the reality is we have a very short situation. Or, or sample size, right? Very short sample size. How do we know who it's hurting, who it's not hurting? How about the person who doesn't hold to this? Just as much as the person who who uh, sees himself, identifies as gay, was scared to death and lived with guilt. And, and by the way, let me just say this, that our church is open and affirming to those who are seeking after Jesus Christ. Okay? But the scriptures are not open and affirming to choices of destruction and sin, because that would be insanity. Right? So, if people that attend here, and statistically, this would be true. If you're in this audience today, and this is something that you struggle with. One of the areas that I think our church needs to be better at, and Brad and I talked about this, is very simply that we make it available for you not to carry that burden on your own. So I just want to say from, from this pulpit right now, that this church will come alongside you. If there are those that are going to hit you with, you are disgusting, you are an abomination, you need to turn or you're going to burn, you know, all those things, let me just share with you, those people have been taught that. And they need to learn the ways of grace. They just don't know how to communicate. And I apologize if, if that's happened to anybody here about any sin. The reality is we all struggle with sin. It's wrong. There's consequences to it. We need to repent, and we need to come underneath God's guidance and, and encouragement. So let me move into, because I'm, I'm really running out of time. Um, so hopefully I, I answered that, that. What's the danger in this? Well, the danger is we've already stated that this doesn't really hurt anybody. But, but the reality is, just as much as the person who lived with all the guilt and all the destruction, the suicidal thoughts, and that's a big part of the rhetoric of the, of the gay community, right? Is that now that is shifting over to those that don't espouse, because you are going to be demonized with language about being a hater, right? About being a bigot. Um, 
We know of case after case after case across our nation that those who hold to a religious conviction or belief system on this, it does hurt them. So there's another part of the danger of saying legalizing this is truly going to affect those who hold a biblical view of marriage. So that's what we have to fight against, and that's my point this morning. Critical thinking versus coercive thinking. And uh, let me help you out. Let's start with this question. Ready? Does a good person validate sinful behavior? You know, I'll explain this in a minute. By the way, take some notes on this. I encourage you to pick up any works by Ravi Zacharias or Oz Guinness on this. I've been reading a book for the past month and a half. <laughs> You'll see why if you pick up the book. Uh, by Oz Guinness called Fool's Talk. And it, it's a discussion about apologetics and, and how do you reform the art of critical thinking. And that's a big challenge for us in the church. Okay, so does a good person validate sinful behavior? Welcome to Critical Thinking 101. Or does a bad person negate good behavior? And how does this relate to this subject? Well, we used to, my generation used to look at homosexuality as a thing. Right? We used to look at it as a thing. Because it was depersonalized. It was out there. It was a statement. It was an issue. In the past 15 years, maybe 20 years, it has become personalized. What do I mean by that? How many of you love The Ellen Show? Raise your hand. Okay. I think it's hilarious. I don't really watch it. I don't watch daytime TV, but I think it's hilarious. So, my first point, does a good person validate sinful behavior? Here's what I think has happened. This is just my theory. When you meet someone like Ellen, or you have a family member that comes out as, as homosexual, you have now personalized this issue. Now it's a problem, isn't it? Now if taking a concept that you can say biblically, yes, God, God says this is an abomination, it doesn't match with how good this person is, right? Have you ever seen things happen where on the news, suddenly you find out that, that somebody has done some heinous crime and they interview the neighbors? I just saw this a month ago. They interview the neighbors and all the neighbors are in a, in a state of shock. And what do they always say? I don't believe it. They're such a good person. You know, there are people that still believe that Pol Pot, that, that Mao... That and, and I go on and on because you know the obvious one I'm going to get to, right, is Hitler. That Stalin, that these guys were good people. Do you know that there are people that will still follow Ted Haggart? Ted Haggart was a pastor that, that got caught up into hiring male prostitutes. He was a pastor in Colorado and a leader of an evangelical association. And he got uh, involved in taking meth. And it all came out against him. You know he was able to restart a church with more people than I have in this church after working at this for eight years? Let me just help you here. Stop putting so much value in the human condition to really think through something. Because we don't live that way. Stop overestimating the ability to think. Because here's what happens... Critical thinking versus coercive thinking. When you oppose someone and all you get is these draconian slapback comments about your character, 
character assassination, that is your first tip. That there isn't a lot of there, there. That the reality is, if I can assassinate your character and demonize you, you'll have no voice. And that's why whenever someone tries to espouse God's view on this situation, they are now called, what, a bigot? Discriminatory? A hater? On and on and on and on it goes. So, secondly... So I I guess I'm not really looking for an answer to this question, but I want you to walk away with this technique. Does a good person validate sinful behavior? Because I think that's what's happened in our society on the shift of this thinking. We see how the shift has happened just in the past eight years. And really the, the, the common comment that I hear over and over and over is what? If loving people want to get married, who am I to judge them and take away their happiness? Right? So if you come at an individual with that statement that's opposed, they're what? They're cruel. Does that hold up in all circumstances? Can you think of a circumstance that if I take that statement alone and say, if two loving people, or just, let's just say this, if loving people want to be married, who are we to deny them that right? You see how coercive language works here? This is now a right. I think the homosexual community would draw boundaries, and I don't even think, I know they do, because they have to. That there are those that they would say don't deserve the right to be married under certain circumstances. And so their own logic, their own thinking doesn't hold up and doesn't work. Does a bad person negate good behavior? Well... Many of us may have lost a lot of weight eating Subway. Right? I mean, think about the millions of pounds that have been lost across the world because of Jared. How great is this guy because of what he did? So the fact that he was caught having sex with underage kids across state lines, which is a federal offense, federal offense, right? Federal offense, and he is admitted to it. I'm not, I'm not putting something out there that's not out there. And the fact that he was cha- caught with child pornography as well, does that now negate all the good that he did? How many of you, in, don't raise your hands, how many of you in your mind instantly went to, that guy is messed up? You just immediately switched in your thinking, of a person, regardless of all the good that they did, this action over here, right? So just a question, just a question for you to roll around in your mind when it comes to this issue. Let me move quickly here. I'm going to ask you, uh, or I'm going to show you three things here. Guinness gives us a, a, a formula. This is a takeaway for today, okay? It doesn't just apply to this subject, but it can apply to any subject. And he says there's three questions for consideration when it comes to critical thinking. So how would we answer those questions that were given to us over the screen or, or what Lyndon or, or Damien handed to us? So Os Guinness gives us this formula. Number one, what is being said? What is in fact being said? Let's clarify what's being said. Right? Number two, what is the truth of the matter? How does that hold up in truth? Number three is what of it? All right. 
I tell you, let's have a little fun with this. You ready? I tell you that the sky is blue. What's being said? It's blue to me. Oh, you relativist, you. It's blue to me. Well, what else? What else? You don't need to worry about this. Don't, don't look at this quite yet. What's the truth of it? Let's go to the second point that, that he gives us. What's the truth of the situation? Is it truly blue? <laughs> okay, you scientist. Um, refraction, Doppler effect. Okay, I get it. But uh, how many of you would say the sky is blue today? Okay, how many of you would say the sky is yellow? That's what I thought. So we can say that the sky is not yellow. That's truth, right? So you're not going to walk out of here thinking that the sky, just because I said it's blue, that it's yellow, right? So then what of it? Well, we're all in agreement that the sky is blue and it's not yellow. Now the question is, how do you use this concerning marriage equality? How do you work through that challenge? And if somebody comes to you and says, I can't believe that you're against this, you are discriminating. And I'll finish with this point. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna come back next week. We'll double up next week. We'll have a regular service, but we'll, we'll double up next week. So discrimination is a huge issue out there with this challenge. This church made this statement on their website, and they recently decided to become an affirming church all the way through. They'll even ordain someone who practices, is practicing as a homosexual. And so their whole statement here is, our resolution is about welcoming everyone to the Lord's table in the way God welcomes each and every one of God's children into embrace regardless of creed, race, ability, or any other wall that divides. Do you think that that's how Jesus welcomes people to his table? I've got some yes, and I've got some no. So, let's go back to this theory. Ready? What's being said? That no matter what divides us, we are all equal before the Lord and able to participate in the Lord's table. Is that true according to Scripture? That is not true according to Scripture. Otherwise, nobody would ever go to hell. Right? That Jesus should never speak about sin. Jesus should never have told the rich man who had, what, nine out of ten things right. Well, it's that one thing that's going to keep you from having fellowship with me. Jesus' words. Okay, now you see how I've taken you to truth, right? So, what of it? Well, what of it is, when you go to this affirming statement... The reality is, is that you have decided to do exactly what Romans 1 says. You've decided to worship the created instead of what? The creator. You have done exactly what Romans 1 says, and you have exchanged the truth for what? For a lie. Now, not just pertaining to this subject, but all subjects, when we practice this, we're in dangerous territory. We're in dangerous territory. All right, I'm going to close. We're going to finish... Um, stay tuned. We're going to finish next week and uh, we'll continue with critical thinking. I encourage you to do this. Write this down. Uh, we are going to finish up this point next week in trying to help you understand how do you deal with the idea of discrimination. By the way, I'll take, I'll take three minutes just to demonstrate my point.
You're a banker, mortgage loan person. How many of you do that, like, officially? Okay, good, because I don't want to offend anybody. All right. So you're in charge of granting loans to people who need homes, right? So the issue here is that we see church after church after church that become affirming that they espouse the idea that they hate discrimination and God hates discrimination. And discrimination is one of these words that is demonizing its character. <clears throat> Excuse me, character assassination. Right? How many of you view the word discrimination as a negative? Raise your hand. I do. Okay? So how many of you want to be labeled someone who discriminates? Yes, Lyndon, yes. Yes and no. See, here's where the coercive thinking happens. Because in order for me to be accepted, I have to devalue your point. And you're probably not going to come off that, so what, I'm going to, what am I going to do? I'm going to demonize you so you're too scared to vo voice your opinion. Right? That's called coerciveness. That the facts and the data don't back it up. Now the facts are that on, on moral subjectivism, if people don't hold to scripture, fine. You know, do what, do what you want. But the reality is if you're going to try to hold to scripture, now we're talking about churches that want to affirm this, right? What's the reality? Are they discriminatory? And they'll write, I, I've read comment after comment after comment about churches that don't want to be seen as discriminatory. You're a banker. You're in charge of granting loans to people. You ready? Let me run you through this real quick. Maybe I, maybe I don't have it all put together. Uh, I may not have it. Critical thinking. Oh, we did the sky is blue. Yes. What do you refute? Yes, the sky is not blue. I get it. Okay, on and on and on, and here we go, critical thinking, we're still doing critical, we'll cover all this next week. Okay, you're a loan officer in charge of one million dollars, who do you loan to? Let me just preface this little exercise, and then we'll dismiss. How many of you remember the, the housing market plunge? It's fairly recent. Okay, I just, I just, just thought I'd bring that up for this demonstration. So, you're, you're a loan officer, and your job is kind of connected to whether or not your loans hold up, all right? So who do you loan to? Let me ask you a question. You're going to loan to somebody who has a credit score of 250 or 780? For those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, be blessed and keep walking, all right? Number two, do you loan to somebody who has a down payment of 20% or zero down? Mike Redlick, what say you? 20 Mike would always say, minimum 20. Minimum 20. And that man knows. He deals with this stuff, right? So he's saying, if it's my money, if it's my million dollars, I'm loaning to somebody who's got 20% down. Employed or unemployed? How many would, would loan to someone unemployed? Raise your hand. You bigoted, discriminatory jerks. I mean, we all laugh, but do you understand my point? Now, what I leave you with is simply this, is that you have to make a choice. Do you decide to follow what God says, because he's made it clear, 
And are you able to love God and love people in the midst of that, right? And how do you handle it when you get in the discussion? How do you handle the coercive language that wants to twist and manipulate so it shuts you down? There are so many ways that we can teach you how to deal with that. Hopefully we just gave you a couple points right there that that you walk away with. Your takeaway today is that. All right, let me close in prayer. I broke my word. We went over by six minutes. Father, thank you for helping us wrestle with these deep truths. And I pray that as we walk away today that we understand, number one, that sin is knocking at our door and it desires to take us down, just like Cain. But the Father, we need to pursue your truth because it's of great value. We need to be careful to love you and obey your commands, but also learn how to love people just like you did. To sit with those who were looking and searching for so much more, like the Samaritan woman, and to address the true need rather than to focus. Recognize, yes, but not focus on the sin and the destruction and the hurt and the choice of lifestyle but to speak to the thing that gives life, that that's what we need to be about. Give us understanding and clarity and let us act as your Son would act. Let us consider and consult the Holy Spirit in all of this. Thank you, Father. Help us come back next week prepared um, to conclude on this. In your name we pray. Amen. Just for homework's sake, uh, next week we'll run you through a, uh, a list of things, a video by a gentleman named Matthew Vine, who tries to go through those verses that we gave you at the beginning and twist them and turn them into the issue of God is actually supportive or that homosexual behavior and marriage equality is just fine biblically as a Christian. And so you're going to want to look at that. Somebody else you might want to Google is Dr. Michael Brown. Um, look at that and look at his responses. 40 questions by Matthew Vine. 40 responses to Matthew Vine by Dr. Michael Brown. You are dismissed. God bless.